Let's take time to pray and ask the Lord to bless His Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You. We praise You. We worship You this morning and come trusting that we have not just come to hear a man, but we've come to hear Christ speak to His people. We pray, Lord, that Your Word would speak to us, would not just hit off of us with no effect, but rather would go to the heart would change our thinking, would change our affections, would change our attitudes, and would change our actions so that we might be more and more transformed into the image of Christ, living as we were intended to live, image bearers of the Most High God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read from God's Word this morning then. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid of evil or sin. I want us to look at the amazing reality of grace, and I want us to look at the beauty of mission. So let's begin to look at that first point. The problem of evil and sin. The first thing I want us to look at is the depth and complexity of sin that this passage shows us. Okay, What we see here is that we have in the Bible not some kind of statement that basically says anything that's wrong with a person must be because of a demon. That's in fact exactly what the scriptures do not teach us. So that what we have in the Bible is actually one of the most profound and comprehensive understandings of the human condition of almost any religion or explanation that you have out there. Because there are those who say, well, demons have nothing to do with it. I mean, that's, that's all pre-science. That has, that's ridiculous. You know, now we know about mental illness, and now we know about epilepsy, and now we know about diseases, and we know about various chemical imbalances. And, you know, how ridiculous to think about demons. Then you have other people who throughout the ages have blamed everything on demons. 
Demons are the problem for everything. They're under every rock. Every time there's an illness, every time there's an epileptic fit, every time someone displays any sense of lunacy or insanity, they are obviously demon-possessed, or they have a demon. But what Scripture lays out before us is a very different worldview. Because we see throughout the book of Mark and we see throughout the Gospels this notion that they clearly know the difference between an insane person and a demonized person. Because they tell us that they were bringing to Jesus lunatics. They were bringing to Jesus those who were diseased. They were bringing to Jesus those who had other forms of ailments and those who were demonized. Which means that in the Bible... We see the depth and complexity of the problem of evil and sin. It is a much deeper and more complex issue than most people in our societies are willing to give it. But what it does then draw us into is is that we can't easily dismiss this whole notion of demons. The reality is, is that they are at work in the world we live in. Just as surely as disease, just as surely as Forms of insanity, chemical imbalances, all those things are at work. So too is the issue of a demon. Which means that the Bible calls us to have a much more comprehensive thought process when it comes to dealing with evil and sin. We can't forsake medicine, but we can't put all our hope in it. We can't forsake Medicine that helps people with chemical imbalances, but we can't put our hope in it. We can't forsake having counselors and people that have the ability to help us to think through our problems, but we can't put our hope in it because there are other things going on. Sin and the activity of the demons are at work, and that means that no foolproof answer that we could come up with can solve this issue. Does that make sense what I'm saying? This man, they tried binding him. They tried reasoning with him, I'm sure. They tried all kinds of things to no avail. They ultimately had to just drive him out from him, from them. But that in some ways had to make burial times kind of frightening, don't you think? I mean, you're coming out there to bury the dead and this man is out there, uncontrollable, crazy so we see then that there is a depth and there is a complexity there we also see that there's a danger now we would think initially the danger would be well don't you see the danger is this demonized man and that's the danger isn't it but that's not really the danger that i want us to look at in the text this morning what i want us to consider is this the danger that we need to realize as it comes to the problem of evil and sin is this the danger lies in ourselves. Now, I know I've said this before, but I really want to drive this home. The biggest problem that people have is blaming everybody else for their problem. But Scripture is very clear that your biggest problem in the world is your sin. You, your sin, your issue. And this is how Scripture works it out. Beware of pride. Why? Because you give a foothold to demons. Beware a a root of bitterness. Why? Because you give room for evil and the evil one 
to creep in. Now, where is that pride coming from? From you. Where is that bitterness finding its root in you? Do you see what this begins? Because it's easy to look at this man and say, well, his problems were that the guy's demonized. But see, there's nowhere in the Bible, and I already used the term because it's just so much in our culture, but there's nowhere in the Bible in the Greek language where the idea of possession is ever talked about. This man is not said to be possessed by a demon in the Greek. He's demonized. Which if we begin to think about that, what we then have is we have a man who in this present condition is like sin on steroids. But he's not that different from us. See, I'll say a little side note, and I really don't care what you think about all this, but I'll just tell you kind of where I'm at. I kind of want to see the big asterisk in baseball. I just want to call it the steroid era and celebrate the fact of what steroids were able to do for Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds and all these other people. But here's what you need to know about steroids, folks. None of you, if you got on steroids, would ever be Barry Bonds. Do you understand that? Barry Bonds is a phenomenal athlete with steroids or not steroids. Now, if you take that to the opposite end of things, we're really wicked sinners with demons oppressing us or not. Does that make sense? That's who we are. And what this text is really showing us is, basically it's ripping back. When this man's being demonized, what he's basically doing is the covers have been pulled back and you see the real horror of sin in all its ugliness. This is the horror of it. This is a man that's not just a sinner. He's a sinner on steroids. But that means that there's a lot in common with us. Because human beings, whether they're on steroids or not, are still human beings. And their problems and their propensities and their issues are the same. And as we begin to look at this, what we need to begin to understand is, as Jesus starts to deal with this man, is this is a dangerous situation for us. Because it's easy to read this and say, isn't it great that Jesus can help pitiful people like that? People who are demonized, people who are bad people, people who have done horrible things and obviously opened themselves up to demons. Those bad people. But what do you do when how you start to begin to get demonized is get bitter? Anybody here today bitter? Just a little bit? What happens when pride is a gateway for demon activity into your life? Anybody in here proud? Do you begin to see the danger? Do you begin to see the horror? The macabre, if you will, of this situation and of our own? The last thing I want us to see then is this destruction that's going on in this text. What we need to see here is, is that our three great enemies, sin, death, and the devil, are at work here to destroy all that God made good. The heart and soul of the attack in the garden was to deface the image of God in Adam and Eve. 
It was ultimately an attack on God. Every single time that we compel ourselves into sin and things like that is, is an attack of sin, death, and the devil to deface, destroy, devalue, dehumanize us. Because at every turn when we sin, what's happening there is, is that we are being turned more and more away from what God made us to be and more and more towards some horrible, horrific creature. Some of you in this room are really crazy about the Lord of the Rings. Others of you could care less. But for those of you that like it, and I'll draw you back in to remember this, remember that the orcs, these horrible, hideous, vile, nasty creatures, were once elves, the most beautiful, noble, elegant, wise. And that's the idea that I want you to get here, is these, these beautiful, you know, Arwen, beautiful elf that every orc walking the planet at one time had looked like that. Beautiful, stately. And that gives us some idea of what's happened in the fall. That this once dignified, beautiful creature has been distorted and twisted and turned into something that could be like this demonized man. So you see what the demon's determination is, is to destroy and to deface and to devalue, to dehumanize people. Because we are the keepers of creation, so you attack us and everything else goes to pot. And God is not glorified because we were the ones who were made to glorify Him. Not glorified by us anyway. So we see the problem of evil, the problem of sin. We see the complexity of this issue. We see the destruction of it in this man. We also see in some ways the strength of it because we see that this man has superhuman strength. He's doing some pretty phenomenal things. But at what cost? And that's sometimes the way sin works in our lives, isn't it? Sometimes we're able, if we give ourselves over to certain sin, we're able to do some pretty incredible things. But at what cost? At what cost? And that takes us then to the amazing reality of grace. And this is what I want us to begin to see in this passage because now we see the real depth of the problem. We see this horrific situation. We see the, the complexity and the depth of it. We realize that nobody in this room is up to the task of dealing with this. Can we all agree to that part? This is what's happening here. None of us are fit for the task. And that's what becomes so profoundly amazing about this passage. It's just look what happens. Jesus is set across the sea and gets out of the boat, and this man comes up to him and falls on his face and knows who he is and says, please don't, please don't do this to us. These demons know. They fear him. See, this ought to give us a real pause in some ways because look at what the demons say. You son of the Most High. This is, not, this is almost just sheer fear at work here. It's like James saying, even the demons know who God is, and they fear, they tremble. They don't say, we know who you are, Jesus the Christ. They say, we know who you are. You're the Son of God, the Most High. What are you doing here? It's almost this notion of territory. You can see they don't want to get sent out of their area. You know, Jesus, you're supposed to be over there in Israel, doing your Israel things. 
I mean, you're the, you're the Messiah of the Jews. What are you doing over here in Gentile? What are you doing over in pagan land? But there he is. There Jesus is. So the first thing I want us to look at then under the amazing reality of grace is the risk that Jesus takes. And this is what I want you to see about the risk. Understand for a rabbi to go over into a Gentile place was just a horrific thing to do. It was horrible. I mean, he, he basically intentionally made himself unclean in all ritual understanding of things. Not only did he go to an unclean place, but he went to deal with an unclean person. I mean, this guy was unclean in every way imaginable. Unclean. I mean, it's bad enough this guy is touching Jewish lepers. Now he's over dealing with demonized people who are Gentiles. And lastly, he was in a place where there were pigs. And if we don't know anything else about Jewish culture, at least we understand that going over to this place was anything but kosher. He was defiling himself in, in every way possible to reach this man. Unclean place, unclean person, unclean pigs. And there he is. <laughs> Second thing I want us to see about the amazing reality of grace is the power of grace to restore. Look what happens here. Jesus basically, with the word, is calling, this, calling all these demons out of this man and we see in this passage that ultimately they leave, they go into the swine, they run off that precipice, fall over into the sea, or drowned. And what happens? This man who was naked, who was running around probably with the, the vestiges of the shackles that he'd broken off of himself, cut, torn up, bruised and battered, screaming at the top of his lungs, was now sitting clothed and in his right mind. Not say it's a pretty radical restoration. I don't know how many of you ever watched any of those shows on cable. My family and I were kind of addicted to watching people go in and gut these homes, you know, house flippers and all that kind of stuff where they go in and they take these homes that are literally should be torn down and, and they basically do, redo the whole thing and you, you end up with this just a gorgeous to die for house, which was once this just dilapidated shack. It's pretty phenomenal. And the idea I want you to see here is that literally this man has been renovated top to bottom, inside out. He now sits in his right mind, clothed, quiet, peaceable. I mean, do, you, do you understand the notion? There's really just no way to get the imagery. It's, it's the notion of, of basically, I guess, if you were at a concert and the power went out. You're at a loud rock concert. It's just as loud as it could be and all of a sudden it was... It's kind of like being in the middle of a storm and everything going crazy and all of a sudden it being... Which may be why these stories are back to back in Mark. King of the storm is now showing he's king of the soul. A soul of unrest has been brought to a place of peace. A pace of calm. Where the storm raged, there's now calm. Jesus has brought it about. But another thing I want us to see before we leave this point, the amazing reality of grace is that grace faces rejection. 
See, we tend to always love to talk about the positive sides. You know, well, you know, that church preaches the gospel. Those people love Christ. These things are going well. We always tend to want to just look at how everything's going great. There's also this part of grace, this part of the gospel, this part of who Jesus is that we need to see. And that is that it also can bring about rejection. I want nothing to do with that. That is way too costly. That's crazy. And do you see here, you've got a man who's out of control. You've got a man who's completely belligerent, who's now in his right mind. And these other folks show up from the township and say, we beg you to leave. You notice the contrast? The demons beg him to let them stay. These townspeople beg him to get out of there. Just leave. Get in the boat and go. Why? What's possible, it's possible that what they were disturbed by was the fact that such a radical alteration in this man really just unnerved them. It's just the sense that this guy, it's almost like, you know, we could deal with him because we kind of knew what he was like. He was a crazy person and we kind of knew how to deal with the crazy people. He's out there in the tomb screaming and, you know, it's almost like, you know, people who live next, in, 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 next to subways um, or, or not next up, but the, uh, the elevated trains, the L trains in Chicago, you know, they get used to that. If, if the L train doesn't run, they notice it. It's like they wake up in the middle of the, what's going on with the train? We have an incredible ability as human beings to adapt to just really crazy situations. And so there's a sense, and maybe that's what the issue was. I'm afraid that the text may give us a little more reason than that you could understand that to some degree what these guys seem to really be upset about is he killed their pigs he messed with their pocketbook do you see that sometimes what grace exposes in us is our unwillingness to pay the price to be with jesus Jesus is costly. Sometimes Jesus does things that don't to us make good sense. I mean, you killed the pigs, Jesus. I mean, that's, that's money. That's money that could have been given to the church. But do you understand that? Do you see that sometimes grace is incredibly perplexing? And it doesn't make sense to us. And sometimes Jesus does things in ways that we would have never done them. And that's why He's Jesus and we're not. But it does bring about this sense of rejection and this sense of get out of here. We want nothing more to do with you. And that would be somewhat sad except that we now have to look at the last part of this passage and it begins to tell us this. That we see the beauty of mission. We see the beauty of mission. What happens? This man is in his right mind now. Jesus and his disciples, the people tell him to leave. Jesus doesn't have to be told twice. They go to get in the boat. And this man who was demonized basically says, please, I want to be with you. I want to be a disciple. I want to follow you. I want to go wherever you go. And Jesus says, no, you stay here. Now, that may not seem profound to you, but I want you to know that all the way up to the 5th century, there was a church in this area. 
from the time of Jesus all the way into at least the 5th century, there was an established church functioning in this area. Who do you think at least started that mission? This man. This man. Going back and telling of the wonderful things that the Lord had done for him. In some sense, there is a sense of this is what it is. This is what it is to go and witness to people. Let me tell you about the wonderful things the Lord has done for me. And yet, for some reason, Christians find that incredibly hard to do. We all do. But could it be it's because we tend to have been saved from something that seems to be so much more sanitized than this guy? Rather than realizing the horror of what we've really been saved from, the depth and the complexity and the wickedness and the perversity of sin that all of us are capable of. R.C. Sproul gets it totally right when he says, you know, the thing is people tend to want to look at themselves and say, well, you know, there's Jesus and I'm a Christian, so I'm way over here close to Jesus and there's Adolf Hitler and Stalin way over there. And he says, no, you've got it all wrong. You're way over here standing next to Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. You're just a little bit removed from them now that you're a Christian. So to put it in this sense is that we, we may tend to think, well, you know, Jesus saved me, but, you know, I mean, it was Jesus and then me right here. I mean, yeah, there was some distance. But, I mean, demonized people? Murderers? Heretics? You see where that's coming? You see what's happening to us here? You see what Jesus is drawing us to consider? How great is our salvation? And if it's great, and you have that great a Savior who's able to save you from that great a sin, how great is your story about it? Now all this, as we've looked at it, is incredible. But the real profundity of this is what we will see later on in the Gospel of Mark is this is that in order for evil to be defeated, you know where we're going to find Jesus? We're going to find Jesus stripped naked. We're going to find Jesus bound. We're going to find Jesus' body torn and ripped asunder. We're going to find Jesus screaming out at the top of his lungs, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the real power of this passage is the fact that this demonized man ends his story clothed in his right mind. By the time we get to the end of Mark, we find Jesus looking like a demonized man. And that's what it cost to defeat evil. That's what it cost for the mission of God to go forth. But see, for the Son of Man to come into the world to seek and to save that which was lost, 
it required him to be stripped, beaten, bound, so we might be set free from the chains of sin and death and the devil. Rightly does it say in the Westminster Confession of Shorter Catechism, actually the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Jesus as a king does what? Subdues us to himself. This man was unsubduable, but Jesus subdued him. Rules and reigns over us. This man was unrulable, but Jesus brought him under control and gave him orders which he carried out and will defeat all his and our enemies. And we see that on the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus, as our King, captured our souls by having His soul rent asunder. By having Himself placed at the torment of the evil one. That's what Jesus has done. And if we really begin to be people, in conclusion, who really begin to believe that and really begin to see that, then we will hear what Jesus commissions all His people to do. Go and tell. Go and tell all the great things that the Lord has done for you. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.